So hello, I'm going to assume that others are as well. Uh, so let's go. All right. My name is Mark Lanier. This morning, you're joining our live group from Champion Forest Baptist Church via the wonders of technology and the internet. So God bless you for joining. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're very, very, very grateful to you for each breath we take. We're grateful to you for the technology and so many people who worked so hard to make this class possible in ways that protect everybody's um, exposure to, to potential illness and pathogens and viruses and, and all sorts of things. My main prayer, Father, at this point is that somehow in the midst of everything going on, you will use this time to your glory, that your saints will, will be enriched by knowing your love and that we will, in a sense, hang up from this, Father, uh, more plugged into you than we've ever been before. This is our prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm so delighted that you're with us and I'm going to try this. We're going to see how good it works. I'm actually shooting this in front of a live audience. If you count three of my daughters, my son-in-law, a buddy of one of our families. Okay, it's my daughter's boyfriend. I just have trouble saying that out loud. And then, of course, our one of our grandsons, John Henry. So with them present as a live audience and you uh, here as well, we're going to give it a go. I've entitled this lesson, the time of the season. Now, having said that, I'm not referencing the song by the zombies. If you remember that song, you know, it's the time of the season, bomb, bomb, bomb. No, we're not talking about the zombie song. We're talking about the season it actually is. I love to think in terms of, of the history of the church at times of crisis and times of of change and times of transition and times when the foundations of what we normally know seem to be a bit off. And, and that, in a sense, is one of the times we've got right now. I mean, think about it. We've got a church of 13,000 plus people that come live to our campuses. And today, everybody is watching via the internet. And it's not because we doubt the the ability of God to keep us safe. We know God is sovereign, but we also know that you buckle your seatbelt when you get in the car. We also know you lock your doors at night. We also know you take common sense precautions, not because of a lack of faith of God, but because we're confident that God has given us security measures we can take and that he expects us to take. So here we sit in the year 2020, as we do this. And the church has had an amazing history. I mean, when the church started out, the church didn't begin as a, 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 a anything more than a branch of Judaism. But even as a branch of Judaism, there were temple powers at the time the church began that tried to stop the church from meeting. They disrupted the house fellowships. They'd take the leaders and incarcerate the leaders. They would do all sorts of things to prevent the church from gathering together. As, as the church broke off from Judaism and, and in a sense continued to thrive on its own, especially after the, the Roman uh, uh, squashing of the Jewish rebellion in, in uh, 
uh, the first century, toward the middle end of the first century, the church still had trouble meeting. The Roman Empire was none too fond of the church either. The Roman Empire was one where for periods of time, Christians would be persecuted, where there were actual plants that were sent out to try to infiltrate Christianity so that the church could be exposed for who the members were and who they weren't. And Christians were called in front of the authorities and would either agree to say that Caesar is Lord and sacrifice their tithes to Caesar, or they could be thrown to the lions, they could be burned at the stake, uh, they, they, all sorts of grim and dismal things could happen. But the church survived those efforts to stop the church dead in its tracks. Another historical matter that comes to my mind was the fall of Rome. In the 400s, you have the Roman Empire, as we know it, that's basically disintegrated. There are vestiges of it left in the East. But the Roman Empire crumbles. And when the Roman Empire crumbles, civilization, as it was known then, crumbled as well. The ability of people to read and write, the safety that was afforded by the Roman Empire. All of these factors affected the church's ability to meet as the church had historically in the lives of those believers. And so we look at that and we realize that the church becomes functionally illiterate. Think about what that means for a moment. For a period of almost 1,000 years, Christians don't have a Bible. If they had one, they couldn't read it. And it's not just a question of how does the church meet and how does the church teach who God is to people with no Bible who can't read, but how do you teach how to behave? How do you teach any faith and doctrine? The church figured out ways to adapt. They wrote creeds that, that the people learned and memorized and could say. They did. That's my grandson. He's not going to bother anybody if he lets out a little friendly hello. That was a four and a half month old hello you just heard if you could hear it. But, but you've got this time of illiteracy where the church can't even remotely meet the way you and I know. I've got an iPad right here. My iPad's got scripture on it. My iPad's got the PowerPoint that I'm transmitting to this screen. My iPad has got uh, uh, all sorts of emails and identification. This is a way that we can communicate today that just seems almost secondhand. But historically, this wasn't there in the church. And if you had an iPad, you'd be watching movies on it for a thousand years because you sure can't read. All of these types of things have affected the way the church meets. Oh, for centuries, the church was plagued with the bubonic plague and the Black Death. The visual that I put on the screen here is what's known as a plague doctor. The plague doctors had these like beaks in a mask and they'd put aromatic herbs in the beak so that as they went to be a doctor to the sick people during the plague outbreaks, that would help them breathe what they thought would have been some way to try and control the plague. They didn't understand it was actually coming from flea bites off of rats. They thought it might have been some aroma. And so, the, and, and you say, well, that doesn't look like something from the 
Middle Ages. I'll show you an actual Middle Age etching. This is an actual Middle Age production of one of these uh, plague doctors. The plague's a bit ironic breaking out right now around spring break because spring break has its originations for us in the plague. The King of England had a main university at Oxford and another one at Cambridge. My son's an Oxford grad, so he likes me to say Cambridge is an afterthought. But with all of the intelligentsia of England being centered in those places, historically the plague broke out in the spring. So the king announced that the country would disband school for a six-week period every spring with instructions for the intelligentsia to disperse throughout the British Islands. The idea was if the plague had struck Oxford or if the plague had struck uh, Cambridge, the plague would have killed the intelligentsia of England. So by dispersing them, it was a pragmatic way to try to protect the think tank of England and the British Empire. From that, we still do spring break. It's just been reduced from six weeks down to one week except at least for my kids at Baylor, this year it's going to be two weeks, and then they'll be going online from there. But spring break, so many of these things have affected the church. By the way, when you sneeze, you say, God bless you frequently. That's because of a plague outbreak during Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory. Pope Gregory declared when someone sneezes, it may be an indication they've got the plague, and so you should pray over them, pray a blessing of God. And God bless you as a response to the sneeze came about because of the plague. So during all of this, the church has existed. The church existed through the Spanish flu, killed 50 million people in the early 19th century or 20th century, 1918 to 1920. The Spanish flu outbreak, and by the way, 50 million for the world population back then is equivalent to about 500 million today. But the Spanish flu outbreak radically rewrote civilization in a number of different ways. It's understanding things like that that have driven healthcare leaders, driven political figures, driven church leaders to tell everybody, let's do our part to stay separated and segregated as much as we can so that we don't have an outbreak on a national scale. So where does that leave the church when we do that? It leaves the church where it's always been. It leaves the church in the hands of God. And I love one aspect about the church that wasn't as developed in the church that I grew up in. It certainly wasn't uh, uh, as developed in the churches that I attend or the church I attend now. But it is what would be called in some higher churches the liturgical or the church calendar. Because the church charts seasons as well and has for thousands of years. The church charts these seasons, seasons, and I've put it up here because it tells the story of Jesus and the story of the people of God. The church calendar doesn't start January 1st. It actually starts generally in November sometime with Advent, which is the time when the announcement about Jesus coming happened and you prepare for Jesus to come. Then there's Christmas time when you celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. 
And then there is epiphany, the time of presentation of Jesus and the time of, of general church understanding that rolls into Lent. As I teach this class, we're in the period that the church celebrates now as Lent. Lent, which actually comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, but Lent is a season that begins with Good or Ash Wednesday and will go all the way up to Holy Week. And so we're in the season of Lent, and that's a season where we prepare ourselves for the, the crucifixion. This is a season the church has in, has uh, uh, dug into for uh, uh, centuries and centuries and centuries. This is a season where some people give up something for Lent. Uh, this is a season where people are trying to be acutely aware of the areas where we've fallen short. It should be a time of repentance. It should be a time of looking at, at your life and seeing where you need to kick things up a notch, looking for ways where you need to focus on God better, looking for habits you need to repent and confess and try to clean up in your life. So I thought what I would do this morning is for, oh, about 15, 20 minutes. We're not going to go forever, but for about 15 or 20 minutes, let's look at some passages together that fit into the church calendar the season of where we sit as Christians, even though our church is not meeting the way it normally does. Let's not get away from it. So we'll start with a passage out of Mark. This is a Lent passage. This is a passage where we reflect on our lives. Now, and in, in to put this passage into context, the people have been coming up to Jesus testing them. And there's a specific test they gave Jesus about a woman who marries a man and the man dies and she marries another man and, and he dies and another one and he dies and he dies. And she's like the black widow or something and seven husbands die. And the question is, when she goes uh, to the hereafter, who she really married to? They think they've got a real sticky question for Jesus. And this is the reply. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love that. I've loved that since I was in high school. When I was in high school, a friend of mine at church was reading her Bible. We were on a mission trip or something, and she started laughing out loud. I said, what's funny? She says, you just never envisioned Jesus telling someone, you're quite wrong. I mean, yeah, you're wrong. Hey, you've got a mistake, but you're quite wrong. And it wasn't until I, I took Greek that I understood that that's a pretty good translation. Jesus is saying to him, you're not just wrong, you're way off. You are, that, that'd be the Lubbock translation. You are way off. And the reason why is because they didn't know either or neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Well, I've been quite wrong on a lot of stuff too. There's not a doubt in my brain I've been quite wrong many times in my life. Some of them 
I mean, look, just set aside all the intentional mistakes and the unintentional mistakes we make. Just look at what we think and believe. I've been wrong so many times, it's not even funny. And so I, I, I want to try to focus on that because I don't always get it right. But Jesus gives us insight on where to focus. These folks were wrong because of two things. They did not know the scriptures and they did not know the power of God. I want to know both of those. You can know the Bible fully. You can memorize the Bible and still be quite wrong because you don't know the power of God. I mean, heavens, when uh, Jesus is about to be born, the wise men come to Herod because they're following the star, the Magi. And they say, where's the Messiah going to be born? Herod asked the, the teachers and the leaders of the Jewish faith. And they said, oh, and they quote Micah, in Bethlehem, Ephratah. That's where he's going to be born. They knew the scripture. They did not have to go Google it. They didn't have to call up someone that, that that's really, hey, uh, do you remember in the scrolls where it says the Messiah is going to be born? They didn't have to do that. They knew. They knew the scriptures. But they did not know the power of God. Or they would have left what they were doing and gone to Bethlehem themselves. You can know the scriptures. But if you don't also know the power of God, you can still be quite wrong. You can take the scriptures and you can bash someone over the head with them. You can take the scriptures out of context and you can mislead people. Remember, Satan quotes scripture to Jesus during the temptations. Satan knows his Bible. But Jesus says you don't need to know only the scriptures. Important you know them, but you also need to know the power of God. So I want to know the scriptures, but I want to know the power of God. The power of God in, in the Greek word, it's this word dunamis, and it sounds like dynamite. In fact, we get dynamite from it, but don't think of it as dynamite because the word is a lot more than just dynamite. Dunamis means an ability. It means uh, um, uh, uh, a power. It means um, uh, uh, a concept of what you have the resources to do and accomplish. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand the scriptures, but you're also very wrong because you don't understand the resources God has to accomplish what God plans to accomplish. You don't understand his abilities. You don't understand what he can do. If you begin to understand what God can do and you're tapped in to who he really is and what he really does, and you couple that with a knowledge of scripture, your life is transformed. So I don't always get it right. I know I don't always get it right. But one thing I'm committed to, and I'd ask you to join me in this commitment. I want to know the scriptures better. And I want to better experience and understand and relate to God and his power. And if I can do that, that will get me not just through Lent, that will get me through life. All right, so Lent starts with Ash Wednesday. 
It's 40 days, goes up to Holy Week. As we peel into Holy Week, Holy Week, you know, so many of the days of Lent in, in the church calendar are days that, that we don't celebrate generally, like Saturday before Palm Sunday. Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday. Saturday before Palm Sunday is called Lazarus Saturday because that's the day where the focus is on Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is in Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. And he's gotten there. Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, who's a friend of Jesus, has been sick. They'd sent for Jesus. Jesus, in, in our language, dawdled before he got there. He took his sweet time, as my dad would have said. And Jesus finally gets there, but he's too late. Lazarus is dead. And the sisters are beside themselves. And Jesus says, look, I'm the resurrection and the life. You see, they, they knew the scriptures. They didn't understand the power of God. He said, you watch. And he brings Lazarus out from the dead. It's a tremendous passage that he says to his sisters, unwrap him from his burial clothes. And I love that passage because I think about Jesus redeeming me from dead ends in my life. First, the big eternal dead end. But even beyond that, so many other avenues where I've, I've walked in death and I've done things that aren't right and I've, I've found myself stuck in a dead end and Jesus has called me out and given me new life. And I hear that instruction in the back of my head. Now unwrap the burial clothes. Because so many of us, he's resurrected us. He's given us new life. He's pulled us out of dead places and we still walk around in our burial clothes acting half dead, carrying the residue and the guilt and the shame. When Jesus says, take the burial clothes off him because he's not dead anymore. So that's, that's, that's what pulls us into Holy Week. And then as we get into Holy Week, we begin with Palm Sunday. Here's the passage out of John for Palm Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a neat passage to me. It's got layers and layers of incredible stuff on it. And I'm sure many of us will be hearing a Palm Sunday sermon in just a few weeks. But when we do, notice three things in particular about this passage that I've got time to visit with you about this morning. First of all, the crowd comes to the feast. They hear Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So they went out to meet him. I love that. I like the idea of, I want to go out and meet Jesus. I mean, look, how many of us think that, that, that uh, Jesus is God and all, but, but do we, in our day-to-day -day lives, aggressively seek him out? Do we truly, in our day-to-day -day lives, say, I want today to meet Jesus. I want to meet him when I'm doing this. I want to meet him when I'm doing that. I love the idea that we're going to open up our hearts and open up our lives to seeking Jesus. 
every day. But it goes beyond that. It says they went out to meet him and they were crying, Hosanna. Hosanna is an Aramaic word. It's actually two words. The na at the end means uh, please, or I beg of you. Actually, it's we. We beg of you. We 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 uh, pray. You know, we ask humbly with please, and then the hosan at the start comes from the the Hebrew word uh, that that is the name of Jesus. It's Yeshua. It's it's a. Uh, uh, the word for save, what Hosanna meant in Aramaic was save us, please. Now the people may have been thinking that Jesus was going to be an earthly king and he was going to come in and save them from the Roman Empire. There may have been some that were hungry and knew Jesus could feed the 5,000 with a few loaves. They were looking for food on their table. Save us from our hunger. Some may have known that Jesus was the healer and they had sickness in their family or among their friends and loved ones and they were praying, Lord, come heal. But somewhere in the midst of all of that is a prophetic cry that the people may not have realized as they prayed, heal us, save us, save we beg thee because Jesus was coming to do that very thing. The same people who would cry out, crucify him, were still the people crying out, save us. They were disillusioned at the point of crucifixion, but Jesus was still on mission doing his saving work. Then the last thing I'll just show you real quick and then we'll move on. As it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king's coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. See, kings could enter the city in a variety of ways. They could enter the city at the front of their army, typically riding a horse if they're returning victorious through physical might. If they're conquering the city through their army, they ride at a horse. But for a king to ride on a donkey's colt is for a king to enter a city that had given itself up, a city that had surrendered. That's a king who comes in peace, not a king who comes in war. So Jesus comes in peace, and the passage is actually the quote out of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, the people were. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah's prophecy is not fully quoted by John, but he wants people to know it. And the prophecy is being fulfilled that day. The daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, the people of the city are shouting aloud, save us, we pray thee. And their king is coming with their salvation. And that's the prophetic word. So this is Jesus. And this is my savior, Jesus, that I'm going to seek every day. All right, we've got time for one last one. 
Good Friday peels into the end of Holy Week. It's where we spend time dwelling on and meditating on and praying about the crucifixion of Jesus. I've pulled from John 19 a few verses. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge uh, full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When I was growing up in Lubbock, Texas, um, we were fond of saying that Lubbock was the hub of the plains. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but the high plains stretches throughout central United States. And the idea that Lubbock would be the hub was all roads lead to Lubbock. Lubbock is clearly the most important and the central feature of the entire central United States, ergo really the whole U.S., which uh, uh, just seemed right to us growing up. Lubbock was the hub of the plains. Well, as I've gotten a little older, I've thought through that. And, and while that could be one of those areas where I was quite wrong, um, I still tend to think of Lubbock as the center of the universe. But without getting into that debate, I will say this, that the hub of all of history, all roads of history lead to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the hub of history. It's what gives sense to the history that happened before Jesus. It solves the problem of the Garden of Eden and the sin of humanity. It restores a right relationship between humankind and God. It gives humankind victory over death instead of death being the final chapter. All of that from before the time of Jesus it's also the hub and all roads lead out from the time of Jesus. Hence, 2,000 years after his birth, we're still gathered together in his name. So within the framework of that, look at this passage. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, I thirst. Now, Jesus has been hanging on a cross. The way you typically died hanging on a cross was through suffocation. Because you, when, you, when you're hanging up by your arms, you, your, your lungs and your diaphragm, you lose your ability to breathe unless you push yourself up. So you've got your, he had his, his feet nailed to the cross. He could push down on those, that nail going through his feet and straighten his legs and get some breath. But, but that's brutal and painful. And, and eventually, this is a, a lack of an ability to breathe is what kills uh, people in the crucifixions. So Jesus has already been through um, a horrendous experience before the crucifixion. He's been beaten, flogged. He's had to carry his cross. Uh, he's been up all night. Uh, he's been spat upon, abused. He's had word games played with him. He's, I mean, he is mentally and physically exhausted before the crucifixion. So the crucifixion, as he nears the end, Jesus says, I thirst. Now, Jesus is able to utter that, but Jesus does not have the wherewithal, it doesn't have the breath, doesn't have the, the, the parched throat to be able to shout. So you get a weak, I thirst, I need something. 
That's one word in the Hebrew, one word in the Aramaic, one word in the Greek. I thirst. We put it into two in English. So he utters that one word and someone gives him something to coat his throat so he's able to shout. He's able to speak in a loud voice and he's got something very loud to say. He's got a shout worthy of making. In the Greek, it's tetelestai. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. Jesus had a mission on earth. His mission on earth was to take on our iniquity, as Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. His mission on earth was to heal us by his stripes. His mission on earth was to seek and save those who were lost. He came to save. He lived to save. He lived to die on our behalf in, as a substitute for the death we should have taken on for our sins. And he did it. And when it was finished, it was finished. So this gives you a inkling of some of the season right now that we've got in the church. And I'm glad for that season, and I'm glad to get to share it with you via the internet this morning. And I don't know where you are and what you're doing with your life right now during this time, but be wise and be smart. And most of all, keep your eyes focused on what God is doing. Don't lose track of the community of believers. Just because you, you, you're not in a big church setting doesn't mean you can't be with your friends in fellowship. Doesn't mean you can't take time, even in a small group, to sing and worship the Lord. So you take advantage of these opportunities to see how God's moving in history of the church, even as the church continues to focus on the time of the season for the church. Would you join me in a word of prayer and thank you for tuning in today. Father, I pray your blessings on all who hear this message and all who need to hear this message. Father, thank you for your love and thank you for your attention and thank you for your care. We entrust ourselves to you and pray for the health and safety of us to carry out your mission until it's finished for us. And then we are eagerly awaiting our hope of eternity with you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you.